0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to New Life Christian Church on this Fourth of July weekend. So glad to see all of you. You're going to play some golf this weekend. Yeah, a couple days off, right? You got to play golf, you know. Bella Vista is a huge golf town, as you know. And I heard about these guys who just recently, they uh, were out playing golf, three of them, and it began to thunderstorm. And if you play golf, you know you're not supposed to be out there on the golf course when it's thunderstorming, right? Because the lightning is dangerous. But these guys were having such an incredible game. It's like we're just gonna play through it. We don't want to give up this incredible game we're having. Well, lightning strikes and it kills all three of them. And they go to heaven, and they're met at the pearly gates by Peter. So you know this is a true story. And um, so, so, so they meet Peter at the pearly gates, and um, he's like, "Hey guys, welcome. Come on in." And the first guy says, "I've got one question, Peter. I've wondered this for years: Is there golf in heaven?" And Peter goes, is there golf in heaven? This is, we got the greatest golf anywhere. Come, let me show you. And he takes them right to the first course. And these guys have never seen anything like it in all their lives. They can't wait to play. And they're like, we're ready to play right now. He says, you got it. Um, the tee box is open. He goes, we have one rule up here in heaven when it comes to golf. And like, what's that? Don't hit the ducks. That's it don't hit the ducks. I'm like, well, we we won't hit any ducks. so It's fine. And so they, they begin to play and they're not two, two holes into this golf course. one of the guys hits the ball and sure enough, what's it do? He pings a duck. And and here comes Peter walking out across the the golf course. And he said, guys, I I told you not to hit a duck. And with him, he is walking with, I want to be kind here, but let's just say a less than gorgeous woman. Uh, You might say a little bit homely. And so Peter grabs a pair of handcuffs and he handcuffs the guy to this woman and said, you're with her for all eternity. Now leave. And the guy's like, my goodness, they're serious about hitting ducks around here. And so a few days later, they're playing again, the two guys that are left. And one guy swings the, the, the club and he hits the ball and he hits a duck. And here comes Peter with, with another female, who's not, not not a beauty pageant contestant by any means, and, and he handcuffs him to her and says, all eternity, you're with her now. And the last guy is like, well, I'm a much better golfer than those two guys. I'm not going to hit any ducks. So he's out playing one day, and then here comes Peter walking across the golf course, but this time he's with an absolute drop-dead gorgeous woman. And he's walking across there, and the guy's like, what's going on? And he takes out a pair of handcuffs, and he handcuffs him to this gorgeous beauty queen. And the guy guy that was golfing says, I don't know what I did to deserve this. This is incredible. And she looks at him and says, I don't know what you did to deserve this either, but I hit a duck. And so, (laughs) anyway. uh, Aren't you glad that when we get to heaven, the criteria will have nothing to do with what's on the outside? Aren't you glad today that God only looks at what's on the inside? And it's in sharp contrast to how our world looks at things, isn't it? Our world looks at things, and and we judge and make judgment calls on what we see on the outside, but that's not how God sees things and what we're going to see is we open up chapter 11 of the story today. God has a completely different perspective on things. There's this incredible verse that we're going to come across and I hope that this is one of those verses that you just you just put to heart and you put to your memory. It's in 1st Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 and it simply says this, "The Lord does not look at the things that people look at." And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. God said to the prophet Samuel, he sent him to anoint the next king of Israel. But before we get into that part of the story, let me just kind of refresh your memory. I know some of you are new here today. We are going through a study together. We're going through the whole Bible in 31 weeks. So we're going through this book right here. This is a resource that we gave to everybody in our church. And if this is something that you'd like to go through with us as well and even jump in right here at chapter 11, it's not too far in for you to catch up. We have copies of these. It's our gift to you. We'd love to invite you to come back and go through the stories. We go through the whole Bible together um, um, right now. So here, let me refresh your memory. God told the Israelites, he gave them this land, it's called the promised land, and he says, go in and take possession of it, I'm giving it to you, and, and drive out all the pagan nations that are in there currently. And when Joshua was their leader, that's exactly what they did. They went in, they obeyed God fully, and God gave them victory after victory. But after Joshua died, the Israelites stopped following the Lord. For some reason, they turned to idols. They began to do what they saw fit, and it, It entered into a time, we refer to it as the time of the judges. It was about a 330-year span of time where the Bible describes it as a season when everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone just did as they saw fit. And so there was one generation that would follow the Lord, and then the next generation would completely turn away from Him. And then they'd get into a skirmish with the Philistines or Amorites or somebody, and God would send a judge to rescue them. And this was the pattern, this hot, cold relationship with God all throughout those 31 or 330 years. And then that cycle eventually comes to a full rejection of God. When the people of Israel they go to the last judge who's also a prophet named Samuel and they said we want to be just like all the nations around us. They have kings we don't have a king because up to that point Israel was being led by spiritual people. Judges. So we want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. And if you recall from our previous chapter this upsets Samuel a great deal. It was his job to choose the next leader of Israel and the people are crying out give us a king. We want to be like everyone else. And so he goes to God in prayer. And what does God tell him? Do you remember? Samuel, don't worry about this. This is not a rejection of you. Stop taking this personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. He says, Samuel, I want to be their king. I want to be their leader. But they don't want me to be. This isn't a rejection of you. This is a rejection of me as their king. And so God allowed them to have their king. And so Samuel anointed King Saul. And by the outward appearance, what everybody saw in him, he was the king. He stood, the Bible says he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He, he was kingly. I mean, when he walked into the room, people automatically knew that's King Saul. Because he just had the look. And he bore the look that everybody wanted. But... He did not have a good relationship with God. And so we come to this part of the story where God's like, I'm looking at the outside. And it doesn't match the inside. Outwardly, he's what you want. Inwardly, he's not what you need. King Saul is a terrible leader. He he turned the nation of Israel away from God. But God rejected Saul for that. But he did not reject his people. God didn't give up on his people. Even though Saul didn't lead like God wanted him to, he didn't give up on his people. And nor did God give up on his plan to create a nation that would be an example to the whole world. A nation that would eventually usher in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to rescue the whole world from their sins. He's not giving up on that plan. So God sends the prophet Samuel... To the house of a man named Jesse. So you get the picture. Saul is the leader, he's the king, but God's got another plan. Samuel, I want you to go anoint another king. Go to the house of Jesse. He lives in Bethlehem. He has some sons. One of those sons is going to be the next king of Israel. I'll let you know when you get there who it is. So Samuel travels to Jesse's house. He says, Jesse, guess what? One of your sons, and he had a lot of sons, one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And can you imagine the joy that Jesse must have had? What, what, one of my sons? You, I mean, one of my sons is going to be the king? Well, let's line them up. Let's find out who it is. And so on page 145 in your storybooks, this is the equivalent to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. This is what happened. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elib and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. So anyways, he has, lines them up. He's like, bring all your sons in here. And one by one, and the first one comes in and even Samuel goes, he looks at him and goes, that's got to be him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. In other words, been down this road already with Saul. It's not what I'm looking for. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. Can you just lock that away in your brain today? The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called in Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by and Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen him. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So you get the picture, right? I mean, here they are, they're all kind of like trying out for the job. It's kind of like an early version of American Idol. Come in, show me what you got. Nope, you're not going to Hollywood. See ya. You know, it's like, that's kind of what's going on. All seven sons come through and God says to him, not a one of them is the chosen one. And then Samuel asks, are these all your sons? And Jesse goes, well, I've got an eighth son. His name's David, but I didn't even bother to bring him in here because, you know, there's no way he could be it. You see, the way he describes his son, there's this Hebrew word that's used in the the Bible that translates literally the runt. So Jesse's basically, well, there is one more son, but what he's literally, he's the runt of the litter. There's no way it could be him. I didn't even bother to call him in from the fields. And Samuel's like, you better get him in here right now. And I'm not even gonna sit down until he's here. Look what happens next. Uh, In page 146. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. That had to have been a trip. All of his brothers lined up. You're not it. And here comes the baby, the runt. You're gonna be the next king. And from that day forward, that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Don't miss that little detail. Because we're going to read some things that David does here in the near future. And you're like, there's no way anybody can do that. You're absolutely right. But you can do it when the Spirit of the Lord's on you. You're going to see that. Now, here's an important detail too. Just because David is anointed as the next king of Israel, that doesn't mean he takes over the position immediately. There's going to, it's going to take some time for, for David to become king. There's going to be a future date where all of this is going to come to fruition. But right now, David's going to head back out to his fields. Really nothing changes for him except this little detail. The spirit of the Lord was on him. He was the anointed one. And I look at this and I go, God does not look at the outside. And so since this is a big point in this story that God doesn't look at what everybody else looks at, he looks at the outside. So what was it that God saw inside of David? I think that's a natural question. Well, what is it about him that God saw on the inside? And then I think we have to ask ourselves this question. What is it that God looks for in us when he gazes into our hearts? What did he see in David And what does he look for in us? And you know what? What he saw in David and what he looks for in us is exactly the same thing. So what did God see in David? That's what he's looking for. There's a there's a passage in the book of Acts. This is in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen behind me. But they're kind of reflecting back on what God has done throughout the history, kind of walking through the story themselves. And we get to Acts chapter 13, verse 22, and they're recalling what God did during this season with Israel. And it says in verse 22, after removing Saul, as King Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. So we get a little glimpse. This is what God saw in David. God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That's what God saw in David, what he didn't see in his brothers or anyone else. God saw right into his heart, and God saw a soft heart that was soft to the Lord. And he said, now there's a guy that has my thoughts in mind. There is a guy that will do what I want him to do. And that's what God looks for in each and every one of us. What does God want from you? You may have come in here today asking that question. What does God want from me? I can tell you what he wants from you. He wants your heart to be devoted to him. He wants your heart to be soft towards his priorities, his desires. He wants to see a, a side of you on the inside that no one else can see that's wholly devoted unto him and what he wants. That's what God wants. I'm not a gambler. I've never been a gambler. But one thing I do find fascinating, and maybe you're like me, is when I'm flipping the channels and I come across those televised poker games. You ever seen those? You know what I'm talking about? I don't know the rules. I am completely lost when I watch these on TV. I don't know what the next card needs to be, and you have the commentator saying, He's got an 80% chance of winning this hand. Beats me. I don't know if he's got a good hand or not. If he can get a four in this hand, he wins $100,000. I'm going, I hope he wins. Just, Just because I hope he wins. I don't know the rules. So I'm watching this and I don't know who's winning. I don't know who's losing. But there is something that's very obvious around those card games. Every single one of them wants to make the other people think something else. You know, the art of the bluff. You don't want the people around the table to know what you've got, and so they're trying to judge you of what you got. And then there's this moment. It doesn't happen all the time, but this moment this is the part of the game that I fully understand. It's when somebody sits there at the table and he looks around and he contemplates what's to do, and then he takes his hands like this and whatever chips he has in front of him, and he pushes them forward, and what does he or she say? I'm all in. And you know, this is a very powerful moment, even when you don't know the rules and you have no clue what's going on. This guy's going for broke. This is, this is all or nothing. This is the guy saying, it's everything on the line. I'm either gonna win right now or I'm done. And you know, what did God see in David? I think that God saw something in David. It was this all-in kind of mentality. He saw somebody who would be fully committed to him. When I'm talking to people about the Lord and we're studying the Bible together and there's questions coming up, what does it mean to be a Christian? What's God looking for? I'm telling you, this is the kind of language that I use with people. You know what God's looking for? He's looking for somebody who will be all-in for him. Do you understand what that means? Somebody who says, Lord, I'll, be, I'll, I'll follow you. I believe with all of my heart. I am all in. I don't care what the rest of the world thinks. I don't care what the, I am all in for you. This is the kind of language. And I think God looked at David and he said, now there's a guy who's gonna push all the chips forward in my name if you want say, I'm all in for the Lord. That's, that's what he saw. But you know, here's the funny thing. In poker, all in is a huge risk, isn't it? But with God, all in is a sure thing every single time. Some of you are sitting around the table today. You're analyzing the chips in front of you. You're wondering what your friends are doing. And you're wondering right now. You came, I know it. You came in here today. And you're thinking, I wonder if I should go all in for God. I wonder if I should do it. Friends, it's a sure thing. It's always a sure thing. And when God looks inside your heart and he gazes upon your heart, what does he see? Where are you at? So people saw the runt and God saw the next king. People saw a nobody, and God saw a man after his own heart. Later in the story, as you keep reading, you're going to learn, you know, David went back out to, 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 to tend his flocks. But remember, this time the Spirit of the Lord was on him. And then we find out that on two occasions, his flocks get attacked by wild animals. One was a bear and one was a lion. And we get this little detail. With my bare hands, he says, I defended the flock. Now, that would be a scary thing. I don't think he could do it, except the power of God, the Spirit of God was on him. And I think in those moments when he was risking his own life for his father's sheep, I think God saw a man that would risk his own life for God's sheep. That he would risk his life for God's holy people. In Psalms chapter 78, there's so many places we could go to in the Bible that tells us these details about David. Psalm 78 is one of them. You don't have to turn there, but it'll be on the screen. In verse 70, it says this, that he chose David, so God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands. He led them. So God doesn't look at out the outside. He looked deep inside of David and he saw a man who was what? All in for God. A man who had integrity in his heart. A man who cared deeply for his father's sheep. And God's like, he will care deeply for my sheep, Israel. And he saw a man after his own heart. So David is anointed the next king. Right there at his dad's house in front of his brothers. And uh, because God sees something special in him. But nobody else really saw it. God saw something special, but it's gonna take a long time for others to see what God. Is up to, But this is where we get a little glimpse of God's upper story, because what God is going to do through David over time is he's going to pick an opportunity. There's going to be this opportunity that God is going to use David to bring him to the front of the line, if you will, to bring him from obscurity into the spotlight. And this is a moment that God's going to use him not only to do that, but also to start to turn the nation of Israel back to him. And it would be no surprise to you that this moment that God chooses is a moment that involves a slingshot and a rock. And I think you know what I'm talking about. This is during a time when Israel was fighting the Philistines. This kind of was a never-ending thing. And uh, the Bible tells us that the Philistines were on one hill and the Israelites were on the other hill. And there was this valley in between, the Valley of Elib. And uh, that's where this battle was going to take place. And so in the story, we learn that, that David's brothers are also fighters in Israel's army. And so Jesse says, David, come here, come here. I want you to take this care package out to your brothers and find out what's going on. And of course, David, who tends the flock all day, all night, he's like, absolutely, I would love to go to the front lines and check things out. He's an ambitious, young guy. So he takes this care package out to his brothers and he's curious about what's going on. Um, he, he wants to know how the battle is going. And while his, his brothers are kind of giving him an update, this is what happens on page 147. Goliath stood and shouted, to the ranks of Israel. I kind of get this impression that they're standing there talking and they're maybe eating breakfast, something their dad gave them, and they're like, Man, there's this guy named Goliath, and he comes out and he ridicules us every day. And David's like, What are you talking about? Some guy named Goliath. Now, Goliath was a champion. And all of Israel knew about Goliath. All the soldiers knew. And every day Goliath would come out and he would test the Israelites. He would say, send a man out here to fight me. And if I win, then then we win the battle and you'll be our servants. But if you win, we'll be your servants, you know. And so David's talking to his brothers and Goliath comes out. And he says this to them. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he is able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Wrong thing to say to a man who's anointed by God. give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all of Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This was a common way to fight battles back then. One against one, and that would define the entire battle. Why would we have to shed all this blood? Let's just do one on one. Many of you know the next part of the story very well. David heard this. He was not happy about it. And on page 148, as he was talking with him, Goliath, the Philistine, the champion of Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. And whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled in great fear. And this bothered David greatly. This got under his skin. He couldn't comprehend this reality that the Israelites were afraid of the Philistines and that the Israelites, the entire army, not one man would stand up to Goliath. And in verse 26 of that passage, David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistines that he would defy the armies of the living God? He's saying, who is this guy from a pagan nation that doesn't love God, that is rattling off these words to the men who should be fighting for God? And here we have one young guy, the runt of the litter that no one's paying attention to, the only one who's even bringing up God into the subject. Who is this guy? Well, this created a buzz in the Israelite camp that there's this young kid here stirring up this Trouble for them. And so this got all the way to King Saul that there was some kid named David who was, uh, you know, upset over this. So David said to Saul, page 148, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now remember who's saying this? The runt. Don't lose heart, everybody. I'm here. We're going to take care of this. David's ready to fight. He's listened. He has is, he is heard enough. And what does King Saul say to him? Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from youth. There's a lot of confidence there. Your king says, you can't do it. Now think about David's life. His dad referred to him as the run. His brothers told him to keep quiet with all this nonsense talk and now the king says, you're not man enough. You can't do it, you're just a kid. There's only gonna be one more person that will ever say anything like this to David again and that would be Goliath. And that would be right before David cut his head off. Look what happens next. On page 149, he said to David, this is Goliath. David goes out to fight him. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Goliath's not nice. He's not a nice person. But here's what David said, page 149. who said the Bible's boring? He's like, I'm going to feed you the wild animals, little boy. And David said, no, you're not. That will be you. And I love the line where he says, the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. It had been forgotten. It had been forgotten. And David's like, no more. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As many of you know, I just got back from a trip from the Holy Land, and there was a, there was a moment on our tour. We were going from one stop to the next, and uh, we were kind of driving through some fields, and um, our tour guide stood up in the front of the bus, and he had the bus driver kind of slow down a little bit, and he says, hey, I want to point something out to you. We're not able to stop. They had, they had changed some of the roads, and it wasn't really safe for us to stop there. He goes, we're not going to stop, but I want to point out something to you. Do you see that hill over there and that hill over there? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, do you see this valley in between? Like, yeah. He goes, that's the valley of Elab. Does anybody know what happened there? And, of course, at the time, it didn't really ding, you know, we don't really think about the valley of Elab every day. We're well, like, what happened? And then we open up the Bible, and it goes, this is where David fought Goliath. That hill over there is where the Israelites were camped, and that hill over there is where the Philistines were camped. And then all of a sudden, in that very moment, I can only speak for myself, but I think I'm speaking for the whole group, it's almost like the pages just flew out of the Bible and hit us in the face. This is the spot. At least, that's what we think. This is the spot and you could see it. And then as we, our, our tour bus kept going slowly, we went over this little bridge, and it was over this little brook, creek. And then he goes, do you see this little body of water we just drove over? That's the stream that David bent down and picked up his five rocks out of. Like, Holy cow. Anybody want to go to Israel with us next time? Well, you know the rest of the story. David pulls out his slingshot. That's basically what it is. And he and the rock hits, Goliath knocks him down, and David goes and cuts off his head, and the Israelites got the victory. More importantly, God just pushed this nobody in people's eyes to the front, and now all of a sudden, people are saying, look what God did through him. And David is set up to become the next king. You know, I just want to say this, in our lower stories, I think it's a temptation to look at ourselves as undeserving. I think that there are times you may even look at yourself, you may not say these words, but internally you might say, I'm the run of the litter. What, what could I possibly do for the Lord? What, what do I have to offer God? How could he use me? And, and we tend to believe how we think people perceive us. I, I, don't, I never went to Bible college. I, I don't know what it means to share my faith with somebody. I can't be in any good. How could God possibly use me? Maybe you're saying, you know what? I, I had a failed marriage in my background. God couldn't certainly use me now, baloney. You know what? If people knew what I did and how much sinning I've done and how much of that was rated R, God, I mean, God, if they just knew, they wouldn't even want me. They, they would judge me. And, and what, God can't use somebody like that. They can't use me. Baloney. You might be thinking, I don't even have a job right now. I'm having struggles just providing the basic basics. God can't use somebody like that. Baloney. I don't have any skills. I don't even know what my spiritual gifts are. I, I mean, I'm, God's not going to use somebody like me. I don't say all the right words. I don't have all the right things to say. Baloney. You know, if you've learned anything yet from the story, is that God uses the most unlikely of people to do some of his biggest things. And we've already seen how God has taken people who have made mistakes and they've made wrong choices and they've turned the wrong path, they haven't walked with God, and God has been able to redeem that into something magnificent. And don't think for a second that the wrong turns that you've ever taken in life is unredeemable. See, man looks at the outside. But God looks at your heart. Stop worrying about what people think. Start being concerned what God sees when he gazes into your heart. And stop this nonsense. That I could never be of any value to God. That God wouldn't want me, so I'm not going all in. I'm going to keep my cards close to my chest, and I'm going to be a constant observer. God doesn't want that. God wants you to be all in for him. So what does God see when he looks into your heart? You know, there's something about this story that touches my heart deeply. How God can transform a shepherd into a king. And if God can do that, then isn't it true that really there is nothing that's impossible with God? Some of you have forgotten that. Just kind of like how Israel had forgotten that there's a God in Israel. Sometimes we forget too that nothing is impossible With God. And I hope and pray that the story of David is a reminder that nothing is impossible with God. Let's stand and let's.